0: Turn with me to the book of Daniel as we begin today our study in this book, the book of Daniel, it's there after Ezekiel, and uh, it's a book that I'm sure that many of us are familiar with, at least in the first, first portion of the book, it's a book that has been a bit intimidating for me even as uh, someone who's studied the Bible for a long time. And so I am looking forward to studying it and going through it as a congregation. I think it will be a, a great blessing for us. Before we come to God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer and ask for His help. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Holy Word, even as we come to A book, as I said, is a bit intimidating for me. Lord, we pray that you would be here with us, that you would comfort us from your word, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your word, that as we read concerning the stories of an ancient history, that we don't remove them too far from our own stories because they are linked in that they have a common creator a common God a common sovereign orchestrator Lord we pray that we would as we come to your word rather than attempting to make it work for our own situations that your word would work in us to change us We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So as I studied this week and prepared uh, for this book overall, it's focused a lot on history. As the book of Daniel is in a particular time and place, and not just that particular time and place of history. We've done quite a bit of study on that particular time and place in history as we went through the book of Isaiah and others as we've kind of talked about that. But just the idea of history itself. Lots of quotable quotes about history. Winston Churchill has one of my favorites. He said, history will be kind to me for I intend to write it. Which is indicative of his personality. As you read any kind of history, including the, ones, the things written about Mr. Churchill, you quickly realize that while events may be given in some detail, there's always a particular side and a particular bent to that history. We read about the great wars of the early early 20th century, for instance. We read about it from the vantage point of the victors, the allies. And we read about even something a little bit later. That was before a lot of our time, the conflict in Vietnam. We read about the American side of things, even though there was no real victor in that particular conflict. When we read about civilization in general, Either be a small thing or a particular person in history. The way that history is told is always from a unique perspective, a personal perspective. And it's impossible to get away from that. And so as we get into the book of Daniel, we're reading about a particular time for this nation, Judah. And we're looking at it through the eyes of one man, Daniel, whose name means, literally in the original language, God is my judge. Of course, the difference in coming to Daniel's history is that we are coming to God's history. All history is God's history. Daniel was a man who wrote the book from his perspective, but also wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the words that we have before us are not just man's account of things, but they are God's Word. This makes anything... From us or from Winston Churchill, or anything that I could ever say about any of this, a whole lot different, because my perspective on things don 't matter a whole lot when we have god 's perspective here, we have the perspective of man, but we have the perspective of an eternal God, an all knowing yet unchanging God. that idea will help us as we get into this book that really doesn 't fit into any kind of category because it's it 's definitely a history book, and there 's a lot of history here for us to learn about, but it 's a it's a prophecy book as well, and it has lots of that, it has lots of both. It's a book that carries with it a lot of expectations, as you've probably been, you've probably read it or heard it taught over the years and been told things about it. Yet, like we learned with our study of the book of Revelation several years ago, most of the meaning is right there on the surface, ready to be understood for those seeking to glorify God in its understanding. So as we introduce this book today, I want to consider two main ideas. First is history from man's perspective, and then second, history from God's perspective. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Daniel chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 today. Please stand with me as we read from God's holy word. Daniel chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So for a bit of context concerning this book as a whole, Daniel was written by a Jewish man named Daniel. Shocking. And uh, it was in the time of the Babylonian exile, which spanned from uh, late 7th century B.C. to mid-6th century BC is where that Babylonian exile is. Some of, some dispute the authorship of this book as Daniel's and some dispute that date. But by those people that dispute those things pretty much dispute a lot of the Bible. And for any and every reason. And in a classroom setting perhaps it would be uh, fitting to go into all of those considerations, but from the pulpit it really doesn't matter a whole lot to us. Yet I do want to bring out The idea that Daniel, the man, really existed in those times that were very real. And he often prophesied about times that were yet to come to pass in the very distant future many times. And the fact that those prophecies ended up coming true doesn't mean that we should move the date of this book in order to make it so that Daniel actually was just telling history rather than the future The fact that those prophecies came true means that we should trust God and his word. If we come to God's word expecting it to be false, it will change the way that we look at it. For the unbeliever, this is the problem since the garden, is it not? The unbeliever continues to take the serpent at his word. You shall not surely die. And continues to spite God because of his word. But for the believer, we cannot do this. We cannot do this. We must stand with Peter. When we say, where else would we go? For you have the words of life. So as we come to this book, understand that we are reading the very words of life. They are necessary for the life of the believer and necessary for the salvation of the unbeliever. There's quite a bit of historical context as we build or to build upon as we come into this book. And Daniel makes sure that we get a proper biblical perspective on that history in these first two verses that brings us to the first point, history from man's perspective. Look again at verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Here we have a very short summary of the actual events of history. Longer versions of these events can be found in other places in scripture. Second Kings 24 and 25, I commend to you to study this week, just to kind of give you a, a historical context for what's going on, uh, 2 Kings 24 and 25, we're going to be reading some small portions of that as we have a recounting of Judah's history, and it's it's a pretty rough time, and so let's look at 2 Kings 24, turn with me to 2 Kings 24, probably want to keep a mark here because we're going to look at it a couple times as we come to the text today, 2 Kings 24. We're going to just look at verses 1 and 2. 2 Kings 24, verses 1 and 2 says this: in, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he and turned. He turned and rebelled against him. He, Jehoiakim, turned against Nebuchadnezzar, and the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans bands of Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants and prophets. So Jehoiakim was king of Judah when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Judah. It says here that Jehoiakim was a servant to Babylon in some capacity but at some point he rebelled against Babylon probably because What's actually going on in the historical context is Egypt had a successful uh, repulsion of the Babylonian forces. And Jehoiakim probably looked and said, you know what, I bet we could do this. I bet we could fight off Babylon. We have Jerusalem. It's the most defensible city in the world. I'm sure we could do this. So for the next 17 years or so, Judah fought on and off against Babylon. And in this period, we saw three different kings of Judah rise up. And go on until Judah was finally taken into exile. And then we see in Second Kings twenty-five verse twenty-one, probably one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Second Kings twenty-five twenty-one says this: "And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile, out of its land." So much for Jehoiakim's plan. From our reading and our telling of this, there's nothing spectacular here at all. And what do I mean by that? I'm going to make this point several times, and it's important. Were you simply to come at this as a student of history, interested in hearing and recounting of these ancient events, then the first verse of Daniel 1, and these passages here in 2 Kings 24 and 25, they tell us a particular story, right? They tell us about... People that lived a long time ago, and nations that lived a long time ago that are no longer here, and conquering that took place. But they don't really bother us that much because it's ancient past. And how how could it really apply to us that much anyway, right, about this, these ancient things that took place? Most believers, unfortunately, have very little grasp of the flow of history of the Bible, A lot of people don't understand kind of the flow of history and therefore have very little understanding of the theology of the Bible because of that. When we read about God being angry in the Old Testament, as we read here that these were gods that God raised up forces to go against his own people, we assume just because we don't understand the history that, well, that was the God of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we had this kind of new and improved God that's all of a sudden loving and has a more... uh, more comfortable and, and charismatic kind of demeanor. The fact that Judah, the southern kingdom of the people of God, were removed from their promised land for a stretch of what would be 70 years, doesn't really bother us that much because it's them, and not us. And in, in that time, in that, that time of the siege, this temple was destroyed, the city of God was wrecked, the people of God either starved to death or were deserted into the surrounding nations, pagan nations. The leaders and the skilled labor were all taken away into exile. And this is just a tidbit of history to us at this point, right? It's a, it's kind of a trivial pursuit game question. That one thing that we know about those one people that existed a long time ago. Well, imagine the perspective from the Babylonians at the time. They were able to walk into the holiest places of God. What do we learn about these places in the temple, right? That we grow up learning about these the holy of holies that only the priest of God can go into and they won't be struck down. Well, the Babylonians just waltzed right in. Took the holy things of God. Places that the priest could only go once a year, they waltzed right in. They took the holy things and they put them next to their own God's holy things. We read in verse 2 that these items were taken to the land of Shinar. So you might remember that word. This is the site of one of man's first assaults against the kingdom of God in Genesis chapter 11 with the building of the Tower of Babel. Yet to the Babylonian, this is the ultimate assault. Destroyed God's temple, relegated God to a side-by-side place next to this god named Marduk, which was the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon. And I'll say this, it's our lack of alarm, it's our lack of care concerning these things which I believe leads us as the people of God to so much anxiety in our lives today. And you may be wondering, well, how could that possibly be? Why does it matter what I believe about these events that have taken place so long ago? It's because we forget. Or we never knew in the first place. We forget that our perspective on things is so often man-centered. It's man-centered to the point that we think that we can get away with past indiscretions, which Judah's doing here. Or perhaps the success of the pagans, the success of the Babylonians in this case, means that we must be and should be afforded much better. I can't believe God would do this to us, send these Babylonians in, or put this in our own perspective. Or maybe the success means our doom and that we should look around us and be terrified of the world around us because it seems like they're coming for us and we're going to be wiped out forever if we don't do something to change it. Or it's in the other direction where we see our means and our ends as the ultimate authority. Forgetting that God is in all and through all and above all. It's in this forgetfulness that we think that we ourselves have to make it on our own and we have to change the world or manipulate our circumstances in order to have the best chance or the best hope all the while realizing that we are completely powerless to do so and this creates this anxiety i want to change the world but i can't and the world is bad and so i don't know what to do and since i'm powerless well then god must be also why doesn't he do something I mean, if he's not able to even keep the Babylonian hands off his sacred items, what makes me think that he's going to take care of me? Our limited view of history and even our current stories can cause us to think that we worship a God that is tied to the events of history, and that he is just as powerless as we are to make things change. This comes in and out of this comes out of many wrong theologies in our day, which suggest, suggest that God is bound somehow by man's decisions on earth or that he's just simply waiting by for them to take place if man would just do this it's only when we look at it from God's perspective that we begin to see the truth we read from Psalm 73 this morning I encourage you to study that on your own that entire psalm is is definitely worth your reading there's very similar questions as the psalmist looked at the world around him and thought Why does evil succeed? Why does evil even prevail against the word of against the people of God? But then he says, he kind he comes to the realization. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until it seemed to me a wearisome task to look at the world around me and wonder why is it doing so well. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And it's not until we look at history from God's perspective that we start to gain this particular understanding of the truth. And that brings us to the second point, history from God's perspective. Let's look again at Daniel 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the Lord gave him into their hand. It could be that we just leave this part of biblical history out as we study the Bible because we don't like it. There's no real mincing of words here at all. It's the plain teaching of Scripture that God's hand was against his own people in regards to the Babylonian exile. If you remember our study in Isaiah, you'll also remember that the Lord raised up the Assyrians. Remember the Assyrians. He raised them up to take out the ten northern tribes because of their indiscretions against him. And that's exactly what they did. Sennacherib, the leader of Assyria took out the entire northern tribe of Israel, the northern ten tribes, so much so that they're now called the Lost Tribes of Israel. And then he turned his attention to Jerusalem, and he could have done it. Sennacherib had the forces, he had like almost 200,000 men. He could have went against Jerusalem without much problem, but in Isaiah 37, you might remember that, when Hezekiah, the king at the time, called out to the Lord, and he begged for mercy. And we read that the Lord inclined his ear to Judah to save them. And he did that, killing 185,000 Assyrian troops overnight, orchestrating the death of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, so that Judah was saved. And so when we come to Daniel chapter 1 and we read that all of a sudden they're not, it may make us wonder, well, what What happened? What went on? Why, why doesn't God love His people anymore? Why would God do that? We'll turn back to 2 Kings 24 verses 3 through 4. Again, strongly commend 24 and 25 to your reading this week. Because it goes well, very well with Daniel. So we read there in the first two verses that the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar came and the Lord sent these armies against against his own people. And in 24, verse three, surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not Pardon, And this was a surprise to Judah. But it should have been. In fact, they should have known that this day was coming. They should have known that this day was coming, but they didn't listen. It also shouldn't surprise us to read this, because we should have known that this was coming for the people of God. In fact, we've studied Isaiah. It's not as if the kings up until Jehoiakim were, were just perfect awesome kings they really hadn't been all that great in judah's history though they had a few bright spots like david and a little bit of solomon a little bit and then a couple of other good kings like josiah was a good one for instance and a couple other that we could name but in general it just kind of went downhill they loved money power they loved other gods more than they loved their creator they would even bring idols other, other gods into the temple of the Lord thinking, well, I'm still worshiping, so it must be okay. They even still, they still did the worship of the Lord, but they did it in the presence of other gods, which is just abhorrent to the Lord. But they shouldn't have forgot, because years earlier, there was this prophecy that this whole thing was going to happen. It's not as if the Lord has been very secretive with them. Isaiah 39, if you want to turn there. Isaiah 39, I'll, I'll read from it. You don't have to, but if you want to turn there with me. We have the king, Hezekiah. Remember, he's, he's just been delivered. In fact, Hezekiah was going to die, but the Lord brought him away from death as well. And then in this, in chapter 39, which is a relatively short chapter in a long book, these envoys from Babylon come to visit Jerusalem. And Hezekiah is so proud of all the stuff that he has that he starts showing it off. And he's like, look at all that the Lord has given me. And the Babylonian envoys are like looking at all the riches of Jerusalem. And Isaiah is there, and Isaiah has something to say concerning this. 39 verses 5 through 7. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, Whom you will father shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Way back in Isaiah's day, a hundred plus years before Daniel, Isaiah told the king Hezekiah that this day was going to come. And you may think, surely a prophecy like this wasn't forgotten, right? Surely something this important to the people of God wasn't forgotten. It's pretty serious that this was going to be the end of Israel as a nation. No one would have forgotten this. At least you'd think. But here we are, Daniel chapter 1, and the people of the Lord are carried off with all their sacred items, wondering... Why is this happening to us? When you read the prophet Jeremiah, you get this idea. They didn't understand why this was happening to them. The prophets lied to the people of God. They lied to the people of God. And they said, look, this is only going to be for a little while. You'll see God's coming and he's going to bring us back really soon. The Lord had different words to say to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. He got rid of those prophets. He told them those prophets had no idea what's going to happen. And he gave Jeremiah these words, which are probably some of the most quoted words in the Bible, if not the most quoted. Verse 10 is not very quoted. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 10 says, When 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my promise to you. 70 years. And most everybody who was taken to Babylon will be dead. Why would the Lord do that? What was what was his purposes for keeping the people of God in Babylon in this pagan nation for 70 years? Well, he tells us in verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare. Not for evil, but for good. For hope and for your future. And we love that verse. We know God has good plans for us, but as soon as 70 years of exile shows up, in some form or another, we will quickly bail on God because we don't think he knows what he's talking about. We forget how good he is. We forget his plans for our welfare, not for evil, but to give us a future and a hope. And that future and that hope aren't bound in the things of this world, and that's what we forget. We forget something that is so central to the Bible, that you can't believe that we would forget it. Just like the prophecy that was given to Hezekiah. How could the people have forgotten that? But we forget that the future and the hope that we have are not found in the things of this world. Not more money or a better job or a healthy family. They're found in Christ alone. God remembers even when we forget. God is doing the giving and the taking even when we think it's all up to us we move through this book of Daniel, we're going to meet a man who is presented with a very difficult situation. He endures the siege of his hometown, likely watching his friends and his family die, or at least have to go through the same kinds of hardships he's going through. He's going to be subjected to a new culture, a new land, new gods. And yet he will not falter. Because even though Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came... To Jerusalem and besieged it we also read that the Lord God gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand this too is true even though the present story around him is heartbreaking at best and deadly at worst which we will see he Daniel will endure because he has a trust that his God will prevail And this isn't a kind of blind trust either. Daniel doesn't suppose himself to be important enough to live through this difficult time, yet he knows that God will prevail regardless if Daniel the man does. Our own short-sightedness is many times the reason that we fail to trust God in our own time, because we get so hung up in the things that are right now that we forget that God is working all things together, including the bad things that he has brought into our lives, that he means for our good. While we can't possibly understand his means, we can't, we can't see the way he sees, we can't understand the way that he understands, we have to trust his ends. No one knew this more than Daniel and his friends, as we're going to see, though perhaps the Apostle Paul had some idea. His life wasn't all that easy either. As he wrote his letter to the Philippian church, he said this in chapter one, verse 12. He said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me was really, or to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul was in prison when he wrote to the Philippian church. That was his reality, but he knew that that was part of God's broader plan to bring about redemption. I mean, even as we read about the sacred vessels here in Daniel 1 being taken off to the temple of other gods, you have to understand, brothers and sisters, that this is just a foreshadowing of the hope that we have because were it not for the sacred becoming the cursed, we could not stand here today and have hope for the eternal life that we have in Christ. Our Lord Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, very God of very God became man was placed in a feeding trough was spit on and reviled and was hung on a tree and bore the curse that was due to each one of us he became sin that we might become the very righteousness of God Daniel the man that wrote these words saw Jesus's day and was glad he would prophesy about the coming son of man a term that Jesus would use of himself very regularly. Daniel looked forward to his coming hope just as we look back to our only hope, Christ. The sacred, Jesus, became ordinary, even cursed, to save the cursed, to make us sacred. We, more than any others, should understand that what God is doing in history in his in our everyday stories he's making all things new the old is going away the new is coming forth there's a great hymn that speaks of this written by john newton it says this fading are the world's vain pleasures all their boasted pomp and show solid joys and lasting treasures none but zion's children know If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, understand that outside of him, you cannot know solid joys and lasting treasures for the life today. Rather, you'll continue to seek the fading treasures of this world. Jesus came to give sinners life in him, and you can have that life by calling upon his name, the only name under heaven by which man can be saved. Call upon the name of Jesus Christ and be saved today. For those of us in him, we have before us this great book to show us the God of the Bible, but also the God of our own stories. He is a God that is working together redemption in the good things and the bad things so that we might receive glory for all eternity. He is using his people, he's using even us to bring that about. Let us be faithful stewards of his word, so that the name of Jesus might be praised in all the earth. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we are thankful for your word that not only tells us the events of history, but tells us that you are behind those events. Lord, help us not to forget that you are even here with us today, just as you were there with Daniel. And David, and the many others that we read and study about, you are here with us today. Lord, help us not to forget the central truth of Scripture, that we are yours in Christ. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.